There we go. Ted Perkins, everybody. Take it away, sir. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to um, know that I can speak to people in Ireland. I know, I know it's a little bit late for all of you there. What time is it there? Like nine o'clock, 9 p.m.? Um, well, that's good. So, well, thanks for staying up late if this is late for you. Um, anyway, I've been working um, in, I've mainly worked in, in Hollywood for most of my, my career. And I've, I've been a... Um, been a screenwriter. I still am a screenwriter, and I have uh, a couple deals going. I've, I'm about to write a TV series for a large network, and I've had a couple of movies made, and had a really great time doing that. Also, as a studio executive, and well, with with that, a lot of that was um, entertaining people, drinking a lot, going on first class travels, staying in um, you know luxury hotels, and and a lot of it was to actually buy drinks for clients. You know, the entertainment industry is very alcohol soaked. So everything was fine until it wasn't. And then as I progressed in my career, I realized that it was becoming problematic. So I had read like so many books about uh, recovery, but I kind of got bored of, you know, reading books about it. And I decided that I was going to do a challenge and see if I could watch 100 movies about 100 uh, about addiction recovery in 100 days and see if that would make any kind of a difference. And so it, it did. And then I, I decided to write a book about it. And then I developed a program around it. And that's what eventually end up, ended up becoming uh, my book, Addicted in Film, uh, Movies We Love About the Habits We Hate. My whole premise is that um, movies can be much more than just passive entertainment or passing the time. You can actually watch movies with a lot of intentionality, a lot of purpose. And if you choose the right movies and you have the right sort of context as to why you're watching the movies or what they could contribute to your recovery or how your story might be similar or different than what the characters are undergoing um, in the film. There's there's a lot of great knowledge, kernels of wisdom um, that could be gotten out of it. Um, and I've found that movies have a lot to say about the topic of addiction. And they also have a lot to say about, you know, the struggles of people going through addiction, the struggles that a lot of us have gone through and maybe still are going through. And so with that in mind, um, I have just like a quick uh, deck that um, I could that sort of guide that can guide me as to what I'm going to be talking about of of why I think movies can really turn out to be you know things that give you these really great aha moments of clarity and and quite possibly be those instigators of long term change those moments that say you know what I get it this I'm going to change my life this is what I'm going to do so let me with that in mind let me um, go ahead and share my screen desktop two. You guys see that, right? Um, let me play the play the slideshow. You see that, okay? Does everybody see that? Good. All right, perfect. So um, I started with the book "Addicted in Film: Movies We Love About the Habits We Hate," and then I developed um, what's called the Recovery Movie Meetups Workbook format, and it's a program that's being sold into recovery community organizations. Um, and um, treatment facilities in the United States and Canada, and now starting in the UK as well. Uh, lovely, it'd be wonderful to also have it work out in Ireland as well. But um, the whole gist of that is to use movies, like 20 movies about addiction and, and recovery to help guide conversations in groups. So um, instead of just having people watch a movie in a treatment facility, have them watch it, but with a great sense of intentionality. Um, and with a workbook with questions, et cetera. 
And then from that, we we did the consumer version of the book, which is the Movie Watcher's Guide to Successful Sobriety and the Teen Movie Watcher's Guide to Su Su Successful Recovery that sobriety that just came out in the last couple of days. Um, and I think both are really great books. If you've got a teen who uh, is having troubles, the teen edition might be very helpful. And uh, if you um, are struggling or you just want some inspiration um, and something fun to do while you watch movies, the Movie Watcher's Guide to Successful Sobriety is a very fun uh, publication. So um, those are all available on 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 uh, on, uh, <clears throat> on Amazon UK. So <clears throat> you know when we talk about uh, when you talk about like in recovery or being sober, it's really like a very big change to who you are. It's a in a sense, it's something where you completely change your mind about something. And um, there's lots of different ways that people change their mind. A, a lot of times in, in the 12-step tradition um, or, or over the years, people had like a spiritual awakening. You know, if you've read the big book, uh, you've heard mention of the Bill W. had the hot flash of inspiration. Um, and that could be very, very powerful. Whether you're secular or not, you know, uh, it doesn't really matter that if, if the spiritual awakening is what it takes to get you to stop drinking or using them, that's great. Um, sometimes people can go to therapy and have a psychiatric breakthrough, and uh, that can sometimes help. Or sometimes there's serendipitous miracles or, you know, pharmaceutical companies are working on on developing uh, pills that can make you not want to drink or, or not want to use or Etc. There's several drugs that are out there that are useful for certain people. Um, there's psychedelic experiences. Um, you know, the the drug that that unfortunately led to the death of uh, Matthew, um, the guy from Friends, um, unfortunately has been used. But if used correctly and therapeutically in a controlled setting, has actually been shown to be um, highly effective in the treatment of people with addiction because it allows them to sort of step out of themselves and see their addiction in a new light. A lot of times. LSD experiences do that, or psilocybin mushrooms uh, do that. And um, Bill W. himself, the originator of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, um, advocated strongly for the use of LSD and thought that LSD actually mimicked the spiritual hot flash of, of, uh, of uh, spiritual revelation. And then, of course, there's meditation. Um, and, you know, all of these things are about, you know, changing your mind, you know, this aha moment that you can get. And so, um, but the problem is that changing your mind is really tough. Um, and to do it, people will fight tooth and nail not to change their mind about something. Um, you know, we see this in, in political systems right now. We, we see it in the way that people act. Um, it's very difficult. And a lot of ways, change is, you know, a, a process where you're contemplating at the stages of change model is, you know, contemplating a change, preparing for the change, taking an action and then maintaining that change to alter your behavior over time and, you know, fundamentally changing your life in the process. But it's difficult. And in a lot of ways, changing is like the stages of grief that you might be familiar with. First, there's denial. There's anger. When somebody tells you that you have to change, you get angry. You know, you can bargain. Well, well, I'll change this little bit, but I won't change that. You know, I'll drink only on the weekends or I'll only do cocaine when I go to Vegas. You know, so you try to bargain with it. Um, and eventually, you know, depression sets in. You're like, this is actually, you know, a problem. I have to do something about it. And, and the only way that I can do something about it is to take concrete steps, you know, whatever those steps end up being. And, and when you finally do accept that, that's, that's when recovery can really start to kick into overdrive because that's when um, you realize that you're, you bought into this idea of change and, and you just go through the machinery of changing. Um, 
you know, but before you change your mind, like wh what is a mind? Like what, how do people come up with like where, how they are and what they think and what they believe to be true? And, and, you know, it's what we hear from people, our friends and teachers when we're growing up. It's what we see in the physical world. It's what we read in magazines. And it's also what we see in films and TV shows and videos. Quite a bit. In fact, you know, the average person spends, I don't know, hours and hours and six hours a day watching TV. And a lot of that is movies. Um, and so, you know, when you create somebody's when you create your own mind, you're really sort of uh, you're talking about the objective inputs of, of what you see here, read and watch and the subjective reality of the self. So that a, a large amount of what you get about reality, what you put into your brain is really in the form of representations of reality, films and TV shows. Like you, you can't go to Finland, let's say, because you don't have the money to fly to Finland. But you can watch a YouTube video about, you know, the beautiful mountains of, and fjords of Finland. So you have representations of reality that are feeding your sense of the world and yourself. Um, and that is really powerful when you think about it, that like, you know, 65 or 70 percent of who we think we are has been made up by things that have been represented to us through entertainment, through videos, through imagery and through what we read. Um, and, uh, you know, representations of reality are really the key thing for what we do in terms of mental modeling. You know, we're, the, the brain is really sort of like an architectural plan that's constantly being remodeled and changed. But remodeling is difficult, it's time consuming, and uh, it's difficult. Um, and addiction really is a part of the mental model. It's subjective experience. It's addiction is addiction, but it really resides in your brain. You know, it's an inner monologue that's taking place. And you're having thoughts about, you know, using or not using. Uh, it's an inner monologue that's constantly active. Um, and it acts out in the objective world of going out to a pub and drinking or buying drugs or whatever it is that your addictive issue is. Um, and so, so how can you change an addicted individual's mind? You know, really, it's, it's a process of remodeling. I mean, it's difficult and time consuming. It can be scary. It's prone to errors and redos and and a lot of times the promised results don't end up being what you want. So um, a really great movie, if you haven't seen it, that sort of takes this up in a very interesting way is called Inception. Um, it's brain, brain remodeling, basically. It's uh, a fundamental change in belief at the deepest recesses of a heavily defended ego that has gigantic long-term consequences. In the movie, these guys are sort of like super spies that they go into somebody's dreams and they convince them in the dream that they should do something like sell their company or divest their stocks or something that has strategic value that when they wake up, they change something. And they think that the changing their mind was actually their idea instead of it being put inside of them, some inception. It's a very interesting premise, but you know, actually, when you think about it, it's it's actually theoretically possible in a sense. And And were that the case, that would be interesting from a point of view of like, would that help people with addiction? Um, and, and really what, what this movie highlights is the fact that your addiction is really a heavily defended fortress. Uh, it's really your ego. You know, it's, it's people and things and, and reasons and rationales and, and logical arguments are coming up against your desire to use. And that's part of your ego. That's who I am. I drink, I use, this is what I wanna do. This is what I wanna be. Nobody can tell me not to. It's a very egotistical tense. So like what, what kind of weapons do people have to sort of combat that? Well, you know, in uh, we could use powerful imagery. 
you know, we can show you a picture of somebody who's addicted to heroin who just had an overdose and died. And we can show you a gravestone. You know, that could be something that that scares you. We could give you all the reasons in the world, but a lot of times those don't work. You know, if, if people were reasonable, they wouldn't be drug alc or alcohol addicts. You know, sometimes weird science or sometimes pain, you know, pain is a very good motivator. But, you know, at certain points in the, certain people's recovery, they've been through so much pain that that they're willing to put up with the pain that goes along with using because they just don't know how to stop. Um, fear can be a motivator, you know, a dead friend or dead loved one or going to a gravestone or somebody that you've lost. Um, you know, shame is powerful as well. A lot of people are motivated by what they see socially. So, you know, if somebody is saying, oh, you know, I'm just so I'm so ashamed of what I did when I was drunk the other night, that could be a good motivator to get them to change. Um, it's not the best one, though, because shame is a very negative um, thing. It's better to have inspiration and emulation. When you imitate people who are being successful at their recovery, when you get inspired to recover on your own or through treatment, and you're inspired by the images of people being successful at, at what they're doing and in sobriety, as opposed to how you're not really doing that well uh, while you're using drugs or alcohol. Um, and, and imagery is very powerful. A lot of people really um, you know, need to be reminded that the world problems are complex, subjective ideas that nobody really does anything about them. And you know, they'd rather not hear about them. But until they take on sudden immediacy as tragic and objective realities, you know, in the United States, nobody was really paying attention to the segregation movement until they saw images of poor black people getting hosed down and, and abused by police dogs. And that really changed the narrative. Or, you know, in Vietnam, everybody was indifferent to the war until they saw this poor naked girl running from her village when her, with her back on fire. And the same thing for global warming. You know, people weren't really paying attention. And But an image of a polar bear in the middle of, a, of on an ice cap in the middle of a hot ocean, you know, that that's, that's pretty powerful. And that changed a lot of people's uh, minds. And, you know, even we see it today, how a song... Um, can threaten the Communist Party's grip on power in Hong Kong. So um, seeing is really believing. So, you know, why is traditional recovery counseling done with no visual aids? And I, I ask myself, when you go to rehab facility, like, could someone go through rehab always wearing a blindfold and get the same result? And I think so, yes. The, the answer to me is yes, because it's all text-based. And so my premise is that by seeing more, you can have more um, access to moments that can cause you to uh, change your mind. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to uh, access aha moments through human reason. You know, it's a re reasonable presumption to think that, all right, if you take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and continue using like you don't have a problem. And that's the world of the matrix. But, you know, if you take the red pill, you face your problems head on and you see how far real life will take you. And that's reality. So in a rational sense, you do cost benefit analysis of like, well, what are the risks and costs of my addiction versus the benefits of living a balanced life of reality. What, what, what are the benefits of living in a matrix versus the benefits of living in reality? And some people might choose the matrix. Like in the, in the matrix, one of those guys that betrays Neo, he would rather stay in the matrix and have steak dinners and fine wines. And even though he knows it's not real, he's willing to stay there because it's much more comfortable. And that's really what addiction is in many res respects. You're, you're comfortable, you don't wanna change, but even though you know it's not real, I mean, you can't continue to live your life like that because that's not real. Um, and that seems straightforward, but uh, it's not. Uh, people really rebel against this. There's a wonderful movie um, called Another Round, which I, I highly recommend. 
in it, the uh, guys all decide that there's four teachers in a Norwegian, in a, in a Danish uh, university or high school, and they decide that they uh, want to follow the advice of a of a very obscure scientist who says that the blood alcohol level really isn't high enough. It should be 0.08 all day long, no more, no less. And that that is actually a perfect point at which you can have maximum productivity, empathy, and just be a better human being. Is that true? Some people certainly think that. I mean, they think that drinking or using drugs makes them more nice or easier to deal with. They're more emotionally complex or better parents. Maybe that's true in certain circumstances, but over time, unfortunately, and this movie does prove that, you know, using a little bit leads to more, leads to more, and it's a downward spiral. And it's it's sort of like the rat on a treadmill. Um, and so it's a very interesting movie to see if you want to study how, you know, these four characters um, analyze the presumption that uh, the the experiment that like maybe drinking or using can make me a better person. Is that possible? Sometimes it does. You know, it's, it is quite possible. Remember the movie Flight? You know, Denzel Washington is drunk and he lands a plane upside down and everyone's saying, you know, it's impossible. You shouldn't have been able to do that. Um, and if you've seen that movie, you you realize that, that that's a very interesting question. Um, and here in, here in Los Angeles, you know, they're doing entire marketing campaigns about like, you know, these are beautiful photographs that people are taking while they're high on medical marijuana. You know, they're selling you on the presumption, on the, on the premise that you're actually a better artist if you're high on, on marijuana. Maybe that's true. <laughs> a lot of musicians certainly, certainly think that. And so, you know, it's sort of like a thought experiment you could do is like day buzz, one pill each morning, 24 hours, and that you stay at 0.05 blood alcohol content all day long without ever needing to drink. Would you guys uh, take this drug? Raise your hands. Who would take this drug if it was available? That's a good question. Just think about it. You know, maybe is there, and it sort of goes to the whole idea, like, is there a middle way? If we could take a, take a drug that would allow us to be buzzed, happily buzzed all day long, and get all of our work done, be wonderful parents and, and spouses and, and wonderful friends and be funny and popular. Would we do that? Even though it was unreal, even though it was something that was not really the true us. That's a good question. So going back to this whole idea that people are not always rational. Well, they might not be rational, but people are always emotional. And you know, when they're deciding not to drink or use, it's like, well, they're saying, you know, this time will be different and the laws of chance don't apply to me. You know, people think that they're lucky that they could overcome this stuff because they're lucky. Their situation is different from those people. People tend to, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a, a, a bias, which says that like most people overestimate their own ability to do things well. And they always think that nobody can do things quite as well as they can, even though there's a lot of proof that they can. Um, so that that has this exclusionary bias of people thinking, well, as drunk as I am, I'm not as bad as that guy. Um, and then they think that the laws of cause and effect will be suspended for them, that, you know, because they're special. And then, you know, when people get arrested or go to jail or hit somebody with their car or, or their life is ruined or they, or they, miss, they lose their job, you know, they realize they come crashing up against reality and they realize that they're not special. Um, so... What, what if, um, the, so addiction is sort of an irrational thing, but, but, so are, but so is love and hope. You know, these are irrational emotions as well. 
Um, and so that's why, what if, what if weird science could come to our aid? What if there was an advanced scientific means to make people totally forget that they were ever addicted? And that's the premise of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. In this case, this guy's in love with this girl. He's going through a horrible breakup and he wants to forget that he ever met her because it's so hurt. He's so hurtful. Um, he's in so much pain that he decides that he wants to forget about it. And then he meets her all over again. That's kind of a funny premise of the movie. Um, well, what if there was that? So just forget all the damage your addiction caused for all those years. Forget it, Will. Erase all the memories of all your years of addictive behavior in just one dose. How many of you would take that drug if you could get your hands on that, if that was a real thing? And all of the people that um, in my groups, when every time uh, when I have meetings, 95% of people say they never take that pill because they say that overcoming my addiction, however hard and painful as it was, is a major achievement in my life. And it added to my overall character. And it's a reason why I am who I am now. So, you know, it brings up the whole idea that like, you know, painful regret. Yeah, we, 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 we don't feel good about a lot of those things. They make us feel bad. But, you know, a lot of times people think, well, everything had to happen for a reason. It got me to where I am now in a much healthier place. And perhaps that regret is a positive emotion. Um, and that's certainly the premise of, of this movie. Like, for instance, pain or what's called aversion therapy. There's many different types of aversion therapy, one of which is called and abuse, which is you take this drug and it makes you really sick if you drink alcohol. And that's uh, a lot of people don't like it because it's a very dangerous drug uh, physiologically. But but for people where they just simply cannot muster the willpower to, to not drink, if they take this and then drink, it makes them really sick. And, it, and it's an aversion therapy. And if what if there was and so the premise is like, what if there was an ethical, non-lethal, non-torturous medical intervention to make continued drug and or alcohol use unbearably painful. I mean, should society use that? Should we do that? You know, and this is a, a scene from the movie uh, Clockwork Orange, the so-called Ludovico treatment where Malcolm McDowell, who's actually in a movie that I wrote and I met, very nice guy, lovely to make a movie with him. Um, he uh, is watching, he's been given a drug and then he's been forced by keeping his eyes open to watch scenes of violence as a way to dissuade him and to make him more peaceful and, and not prone to violence. Uh, very interesting. And, you know, this goes back a long time, like hundreds of years. There's been cures for alcohol use and, and abuse. There's been chemical aversion therapy, chemical uh, deconditioning, guided imagery, alcohol soaking, virtual reality aversion therapy, hypnosis. I mean, they've tried quite a bit. Um, and, and of course, now, you know, there's pain. You know, pain is something that can totally stop you from doing something. And, um, you know, the question really becomes like, if I stop drinking now, there's gonna be a lot of pain right now. Um, but if I don't stop drinking, it, there's just gonna be like a little bit of pain for the rest couple of months while I'm while I'm trying to stay sober or moderate my drinking. And a lot of times people won't, won't get off their drug of choice because they just don't wanna go through the pain of withdrawal. Uh, but then there's a question of like, why don't you deal with all the pain now so that you don't have any pain later? So people are making these rational choices all the time, although they don't seem rational all the time. And you could use pay, uh, fear, you know, um, the fear of imprisonment, the fear of, you know, death, for instance. But the problem is that, you know, over time, things that seem very scary at the beginning don't end up being scary over time. So like, for instance, The Exorcist was a very terrifying movie when it was originally out. But now movies about exorcisms are kind of mildly derivative and, and mildly entertainment. They're kind of kitsch. They're funny. You know, it doesn't it's not really it's not scary anymore. And that's what happens if you do something 
And the same thing with Jaws. Like now Jaws was terrifying, but now The Meg is a comedy movie. Um, and so that's what happens with, you know, you do something a lot. Um, things that are used to be scary are not scary anymore. And quite frankly, how scared can, can an addict be when, like, for instance, if they're taking cockadil and they're and they're injecting their veins and, and they're getting these abscesses and the, the medic has to and their pieces of their skin are falling off and they have to cut their arm off. They're not scared of anything. If they're letting themselves go through that, you know, the chances of using fear as a motivator are probably very slim. You know, what about shame, for instance, you know, um, you know, family can, you could shame your family, your friends, your colleagues, uh, you know, and, and shame is a very powerful motivator. But the problem is that over time, uh, the more you use alcohol or drugs, the less you, the less shameful um, you're prone to be. And, and some addicted individuals, uh, they never feel shame. And, and, and do addicted individuals over time, do they still feel shame? And, you know, some people just don't care what other people think. I'm one of those people. I, I simply do not care what other people think. And so um, also, you know, it's not a very good motivator because any change that you make in your addictive behavior is kind of a reaction to others. It's not based on a personal desire to change. And so that's something that you have to take into account. So, so what do we have? Let's recap. So we've got reason, pain, fear, shame, inspiration, and emulation. Um, and that's why I thought the recovery movie meetups would be a really interesting tool for this. Um, and this is why, you know, movies can do can provide powerful representations and aha weapons without the risk of emotional damage uh, or emotional. Uh, and so it's really all based on vicarious learning. So, you know, you see characters in movies making rational choices and getting really great results. You see characters feeling shame, but, but you're not forced to feel it. You see characters suffering pain in movies, but you don't have to experience it for yourself. You see characters being inspired to change and then succeeding. And you see characters and outcomes that you would like to emulate. And that's why movies can really give you these great moments of vicarious learning. So the recovery experience is it's observed in here where you watch a movie, you discuss it in this subjective and objective experience of discussing these movies in a movie meetup. And it's reinforced uh, in the subjective experience of your brain where you have an aha moment. And that's really what we're going for in this program and what my whole book and everything that I've done is all about. So, you know, there's films about being rational in recovery. So we can languish in the false reality of being irrational. Like, I'm not like those people. I don't have a problem. Or if you watch these movies, 28 Days or Clean and Sober, the, the progress of the character, the main thrust of the character in the movie is to create a new reality because they're rational. They realize I'm just like those people and I can solve my problem. That's what those movies are about is people owning up to reality and then finally deciding to do something about it. And there's films that are painful. Like if you see Requiem for a Dream, that's a, that's a tough movie to stomach. Or Leaving Las Vegas, that's, again, it's a tough movie to watch because, you know, they don't have happy endings. And you realize that there's no free pass and addiction will almost invariably lead to some painful outcomes, if not the most painful outcomes. And, and you know, an understanding that the end result of addiction is entirely under the control of an, of an individual. Pain is a choice, you know, and, and in the choice in Leaving Las Vegas, Nicolas Cage, who won the Oscar for this film, has chosen that he wants to commit slow, slow suicide through alcohol. And, you know, he's entitled to that, that decision. He has free will. It's sad, but it also teaches us something about the nature of addiction. Sometimes addiction is more powerful than our own need to survive, than our own desire to live. And addiction tarnishes our whole idea of what living should be about. Um, and, um, you know, films about shameful consequences, The Good House and, and Rachel Getting Married, wonderful films about how social, as social creatures, humans are constantly preoccupied 
with how others perceive them and how losing face has 100,000 years of social history behind it. You know, back 100,000 years ago, we didn't have police. We didn't have, you know, we, we were hunter-gatherers and, and, and we didn't have the structures of society and codified laws. So really one of the ways to motivate people to not do shitty things was to shame them. And shame was something that actually worked. So like if you shamed your family, you know, there were consequences. And if you felt ashamed, you might do things differently. And so people wouldn't have to kill you. They could just shame you. It was better for the group as a whole, because if you all had to hunt together, losing one person who does shitty things to somebody else, you know, it's better to shame them than to kill them. So, you know, and films that inspire recovery. Thanks for sharing in flight. You know, we like to and we like and respect role models and testimonials have a 200 year history and people are inspired by by them in rehab. And we've seen that when people watch testimonials by and, and movies like Flight and Thanks for Sharing, that you know, they like to emulate people that are being successful at their recovery. Um, and you know, films are also important because they show us addiction and recovery in relationships. And you know, um, you're not the only person in this equation if you're addicted to drugs or alcohol. There's other people involved that are not addicted, your family and your friends. So watching movies like Days of Wine and Roses and When a Man Loves a Woman are important because they show you the dynamics of how other people are coping with your addiction and, and, and how they might see you and how you might see their problems of them trying to deal with your problems because their your problems have now become their problems. And there's, of course, you know, films about perfection because, you know, a lot of addiction has to do with people being perfectionists. And, and so, you know, a lot of times these movies teach us about unconditional other acceptance and unconditional self-acceptance and unconditional life acceptance, which are all part of the smart recovery tools that, that I've used to um, get better in my recovery, which I can talk about in a little bit. And there's films about addiction to success and, and or lack of success and success leading to addictive problems. And Gia, Stars Born and Crazy RL show us that, you know, having everything that you want in life is not in life and having all the money in the world and all the fame in the world is not necessarily going to be something that's going to cause you happiness. In fact, a lot of times it does the opposite. And so that's why we see a lot of, of actors and actresses and musicians being very upfront and frank. Um, about their addiction. And, you know, the death of the friend star, uh, Matthew Perry, uh, just goes to highlight that recently. And of course, there's films about the family issues of addiction, parents, sons and daughters, and the movies Four Good Days and Beautiful Boys are, are really great ambassadors for those conversations. So really, you know, my whole premise is, you know, if TV shows and movies, you know, if TV shows can inspire impressionable children, why can't films inspire impressionable adults in their recovery? So that's that's what my whole story is about. And and uh, thank you for letting me run through that. And, you know, let me know if you have any questions about what you've just heard or if you think or if you have any ideas, some movies that might you might want to watch that could help or inform your own process, your own journey.